Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Peter Sterling. He is professor of neuroscience at the, in the Paramount School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. His broad goal has been to learn how the brain is designed to understand its functional architecture. He is the author of books like Principles of Neural Design, and the one we're going to focus the most on today, What is Elf, Allostasis, and the Evolution of Human Design. So, Dr. Sterling, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Great, uh, Ricardo. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I would just add that the Principles of Neural Design, it was a co-author, it was my co-author was Simon Laughlin, and he was a very important. I don't want to leave him out. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I will leave that in the link to your books. I mean, it will be there anyway, so okay. for people to know. Um, so first question then, how do you go about studying how the brain is designed? Well, that's, you know, that's a great, it's a big question, of course. Um, it's really, I think, a sort of kind of reverse engineering you accumulate, you have to accumulate a broad knowledge of what's there. You, you try to make a parts list, you know, just for whatever little area you're studying. And then you have to construct some sort of a wiring diagram of how all the parts go together, a, you know, a schematic as you would for any machine or electronic device. And um, early on, uh, I did this by, uh, by, what's now called connectomics. Connectomics is trying to find the synaptic connections between all the neurons in, a, in an area. And I did this working on the retina, uh, the mammalian retina, starting in the, in the 70s. And the way I did it, my lab did it for a long time was to take a piece of retina, fix it and slice it up into very, very thin slices, uh, about, about a 10th of a micron thick, and then photograph each slice in the electron microscope because you need that resolution to see synapses and uh, and then to trace out it's like cutting through a bowl of spaghetti and reconstructing all of the all of the pieces of spaghetti uh, as you go and, and of course it's we did it then uh, with uh, about 200 serial sections and uh, a few thousands of electron micrographs by hand tracing on plastic sheets. Now people uh, send it to send it out and they get it sliced up uh, automatically and photographed automatically and then computers uh, do all the most of the tracing and then you have to annotate it and so on. So and, and so and they called it connectomics. I called it in the early days uh, microcircuitry, trying to reconstruct the microcircuitry. And we found it was very slow. And uh, I didn't have much competition because people thought it was just too much trouble. And, uh, and now it's, it's become almost a routine thing and, and people understand that it's a, a valuable approach. So if you get circuits and, uh, then, and, and you see broad patterns, then, then you, have to, you, know, you have to have some hypothesis about what's going on. And so for example, I thought of this example, um, one of the things you notice is in the brain, large, large, you know, all over the brain, is that the tracks that connect one area to another uh, by, by wires called axons, actually the axon diameters vary uh, greatly. 
Some are very thick, some are extremely thin, uh, as thin as you can make a, a, a neural process, so a tenth of a micron. So if you, if you have a, a tenth of a micron axon and you compare that to a, uh, a 10 micron axon, uh, the, the difference is a uh, hundredfold factor. And the difference in the uh, volume of those two wires and the energy use is 10,000. So it makes a huge difference whether you use fine wires or thick wires. And I, I used to show students in the lab, I taught a course on structure, brain structure. I said, look at this, what, this difference uh, is huge and, and it must have something very important to do with the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, the design of the brain. And uh, because, it, so what, what would that be? And of course, a supercomputer, we're, not a, we're smarter than a supercomputer, but a supercomputer requires a whole room uh, to encompass it. And it draws 20 megawatts of electricity. Our brain fits in essentially in a milk carton, a little over a liter, and, uh, and it runs on the, the electricity required by a refrigerator light bulb about 15 watts. So how can you compute with, with so, so efficiently in space and energy? And that has something to do with, with, these, uh, with the, this variation in the axons. The, the fine axons uh, require one ten thousandth of the space and energy, but they conduct, uh, they conduct information slowly, fewer bits per second if you need so auditory fibers are the very largest ones and they need uh, to conduct information rapidly, many bits per second. And uh, so it, it costs more. So one of the principles of design that emerges is that the brain, wherever it's possible, sends information as slowly as possible. And, and, and when it has to send information fast, um, it has to be much uh, use much thicker wires and it's much more costly and this is so so that's one idea of um, of how design emerges from looking at patterns and thinking uh, the general hypothesis uh, that, that Simon Laughlin and I uh, used in our book was that um, the brain is really designed for computational efficiency and that's why we can do so much better than a, than a supercomputer Mm -hmm. that's that's the idea yes so um but since you can study the brain at different scales from the nanoscopic to the microscopic and the macroscopic how do you integrate all of those scales well yeah <laughs> another, another big question well um yeah so let's deal with what, what nanoscopic is. Nano, nanoscopic refers to um, 10 to the minus ninth meters. It's a, it's a, it's a length scale. And um, so on the, when you're dealing with the parts of the brain tissue, biological tissue, that's nanoscopic, um, for example, a protein molecule, a single protein molecule is about six nanometers across. Okay, to give you some idea. And uh, so at that level, um, the, the sort of signaling and interactions go by chemistry. And um, so um, 
the, the space between the synaptic space that joins two neurons at a synapse is about 20 nanometers. And uh, the packet of neurotransmitter that one neuron releases onto another is about 30 nanometers. So that's, uh, that's a scale that uh, has been highly studied. I, I, my laboratory worked on that to some degree. And um, uh, if you compare that to a whole neuron, say a 60, 60 micron neuron, the size is like the difference is a hundred thousand fold. So, so we have to understand, to understand the brain, we have to understand function across a scale of minimal scale of 100,000. And then of course, um, when you get up to, uh, to connections between neurons, you're up to the millimeter scale and you're adding, uh, you're adding another factor of a thousand. So, um, so one of the, the, um, the points about um, the nanoscopic scale in chemistry is that chemistry uh, runs fast, faster, when the molecules that are, have to interact are at high concentrations. And so uh, you can do pretty good, uh, reasonably fast chemistry uh, with high concentrations. And you do that because at small volumes, um, only a few molecules are enough to make a high concentration. And so at a synapse, when we release, when the brain releases one packet of transmitter into the cleft, synaptic cleft, this tiny cleft, it only needs like 5,000 molecules of this small, uh, uh, of this small chemical to, uh, to create a, 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 a fast reaction. The other thing is that chemistry proceeds by diffusion uh, normally in, in this aqueous or, or intercellular fluid is largely water. And uh, in diffusion, it turns out the physics in diffusion is relatively fast at very small distances. It, it, at, at, at a distance of uh, 10 nanometers, it goes in microseconds. Things diffuse from one place to another in microseconds. But as the distance increases to say a millimeter, it's very slow. And so, uh, so the brain needs to use these very small volumes, small distances to make things go fast. And then when, uh, when you uh, get to uh, the level of a neuron and signaling from one neuron to another across millimeters, diffusion simply won't work. And so you need to, um, you have two alternatives. One is that if you need a single long distances from the brain to the body or from one area of the brain to another, if you, if you release a small packet into the bloodstream, the heart pumps and carries things relatively quickly uh, over seconds. And uh, I mean, if once you get an injection of something, you can feel it, you know, a, sort of a jolt in, in, a, in a few seconds. Um, but even that seconds for the brain is, is a pretty long time, it's slow. So if you need to, you know, um, really see if you're driving, you need to see something quickly, you need to respond quickly. Uh, and oh, I should stop and say, that method of releasing a chemical into the bloodstream and sending it all over the brain 
is, uh, is what hormones do. And of course, when you release a small packet into the whole volume of the, of the blood, um, it's very dilute. And so you have to make receptors on, on neurons and, and cells in the body that, that bind very tightly so that they can, so they can grab onto just the slightest mole molecule low concentration that it arrives. And that further slows it down because binding, strong binding means slow release. And so it's, it's a slow process relatively. If you need fast, fast binding and unbinding, uh, you need to send uh, signals electrically over long distances and then release high, high concentrations at the other end. And so that's what nerve wires axons do. They, they use electrical signaling to send information over long distances and then they convert it at the other end to, um, to uh, these uh, chemical processes. So, um, but the, the sending, the electrical signaling is extremely expensive. And because you're, you're, you're releasing, uh, uh, it's basically you're discharging a battery and then you have to recharge the battery and, and it's expensive. So, um, so, uh, you, so, you know, that's, we've gone now from, in terms of just in terms of signaling from the nanoscopic up to the millimeter level, which is a factor of a million, okay? And then, then you know, if you wanna study actually how the, uh, the neurons in an area communicate with each other, then you, you, then you have to record really the uh, electrical activity of uh, thousands of neurons simultaneously and either by optical imaging or by electronic means. And uh, the progress that's been doing and made in that over the last 10 years is, is immense. And that sort of technology came as I was leaving, closing my laboratory and, and going on to other things. But it's, a, you know, it's, so you have to sort of gradually master all these different levels and, and think about it. So. Yeah. So now another big question, what is allostasis? I mean, what is it exactly? What do you mean by it? Sure. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, allostasis, I mean, the short answer is allostasis is a word that I made up, okay, uh, with Joseph Iyer, my colleague Joseph Iyer in 1988. And I made it up, it's, it's from the Greek, two Greek parts, allo and sasis, uh, with the advice from a professor at, at Penn who's a philosopher, you know, studies Greek philosophy. And before I explain allostasis, uh, I, the reason I coined it is as a contrast to the standard word in biology, homeostasis. Homeostasis, you find in every biological journal and almost every article. And the idea is that uh, the body is a self-correcting mechanism that uh, homeo uh, means um, uh, constant, stasis means constant and homeo is, is this self-correcting mechanism. And the idea is that the body is really has a collection of uh, uh, corrections like a thermostat and if, if it has a set point for temperature, for blood glucose, for heart rate, for blood pressure. And when something causes a deviation from any of these things, the error 
is detected and then feeds back a correction to make it right. And, uh, and this has been a standard idea. Uh, it was started by Claude Bernard uh, in, you know, in the uh, 1700s, I guess 1800s. Uh, Walter Cannon was a famous professor of physiology at Harvard in the, you know, around the turn of the last century, um, studied physiological regulation, and he coined this term actually homeostasis in the 1930s. And every medical school teaches in the first year course, at least Penn teaches in the first year course that blood glucose rises, causes insulin to be secreted, causes insulin glucose to be absorbed and it's all automatically regulated. <clears throat> the problem is that when I started looking at this in, in, the, uh, in the early 70s with Joseph Iyer, I realized it isn't really true. Uh, I mean, as, as our activities change during the day, from, from night to day, our physiology changes. And when we, we become, um, our, our, and, and it's not just, Cannon recognized the condition he would call fight or flight. If you're challenged in some way, there's a, there's a, a neural response, the brain recognizes this challenge and it mobilizes uh, chemicals and increases your heart rate. Um, and so you're prepared to meet this challenge. But his understanding, and, and still to this day, the understanding of regulation of the body, is just there's an emergency or there's not an emergency. But it isn't true. It, it wouldn't be efficient. So there's a continual regulation of fuel, uh, supplies of, uh, you know, all of the all of the things we need, oxygen, uh, water, salt, nutrients, are continuously regulated according to the need. And, um, and what's also regula regulated is our anticipation of what we're going to need. So we don't wait for the body to cool off uh, and then say, oh my gosh, we have to burn more fat to, to warm ourselves up. We remember, oh, we'll take a sweater. And when we get cold, we'll put on the sweater. It saves a lot of fuel. And if you make a mistake and go uh, high in the mountains where without a sweater, you're, like, you're, you're risking hypothermia and death. So, so the, with this, the idea of allostasis is allo means uh, other. And so the idea is rather than holding things constant, it's, it's, um, it's allowing variation to occur to preserve stability and it profoundly involves the brain. So uh, in, in medical schools across the US, people teach about the body and then they teach a, a course in the brain, but they don't really get them together very much. And our um, formulation is that the brain is from the beginning profoundly uh, engaged. In fact, the whole point of the brain is to regulate the body efficiently. And this started with the first multicellular uh, or bilateral organisms, as I maybe will mention later, um, a worm, a marine worm had, a, had the first brain. And the point of it was to steer the worm to where there was good stuff to eat and where the right temperature and the right pH and find mates and stuff like that. And, and it developed these systems for continual monitoring and regulation. And, um, and we preserved them, actually. 
So um, yeah, so that's, so that's the idea of allostasis is a continuous regulation. And it's really what uh, Toyota uh, invented for the assembly line, instead of having great stores of materials and, and too much storage space and running out of stuff, uh, its, its slogan of Toyota became just enough, just in time. We'll, we'll, we'll supply just what you need, just when you need it. And basically uh, it's a sort of allostasis. Mm -hmm. So to try to put things into an evolutionary context, uh, when it comes to human evolution, in your book, uh, What is Elf, you talk about four epochs of design that characterize it. Could you tell us about them? Sure. Um, well, of course, it, it's, it's an arbitrary uh, uh, designation, but I, I found it useful. I mean, I, I didn't start with this idea. I just, as I was reading and thinking about it, it sort of came to me that, um, of course, Life began, life on Earth began uh, four billion years ago. And the first organisms were bacteria and related uh, organisms, and they were really, really tiny. And they, um, the, the source of energy that they had was they had these little power plants that would, uh, that would take energy from the environment, convert it into chemical energy inside the cell, and they were placed in the, in the cell membrane. And so, um, and, and so it was enough to power, develop chemical reactions to say, break down glucose, make new proteins and stuff like that. And so um, for 2 billion years, bacteria and these other organisms, um, uh, archaebacteria is a variety of classifications, developed their chemical reactions to, to run this metabolism to a very high efficiency. So, so they developed the, the ways to break down glucose into, which is six carbons into single carbons, how to oxidize it to capture the energy. And, um, and these reactions really became optimized. Uh, many of them uh, are the most, the sequence is as efficient as you can get. The energy capture is as efficient as you can get, for example, a bacterial um, uh, macromolecule called ATP synthase takes two molecules, forces them together to make ATP, which is our energy currency uh, to drive most of our reactions. The energy it takes from glucose and produces in, in ATP is 90% efficient. So it's it nearly as good as you can make. So, um, so the bacteria optimized our fundamental metab biochemical metabolism and we retain that. So in some sense, we, we, uh, we retain the evolutionary um, products of bacteria in all our cells because they, we couldn't improve them. We could make them worse, but, but these are just as good as you can get. So we, we conserve them. So after 2 billion years, uh, there are these tiny bacteria and um, they sort of had, had, had reached their limit of what you could do uh, at that size scale. And they couldn't get bigger for the reason that if you increase the diameter of a cell, its volume of its cytoplasm increases is the cube of the diameter. But the energy source is in the membrane 
uh, of the cell and it only increases as the square. And so there's a geometrical or physical limit to, um, to how you can enlarge a cell only uh, with the power plant in the membrane. So what happened? Well, one kind of bacterium captured another kind of bacterium and uh, we don't know how it happened, but before too long, uh, the power plant of the one bacterium is inside the cell and it stayed there and it could multiply. And so now you had a cell that had, um, that had its power plant in the cytoplasm and it could keep pace with the growth of the volume of the cell. And so it became a permanent structure uh, of the cell, an organelle, uh, which is called a mitochondrion. So once this bacteria had captured this organelle and made mitochondria, it had essentially an infinite uh, energy source and it began adding genes, more new genes. It added new uh, organelles, for example, a cell nucleus to surround the DNA and to regulate its, its uh, expression. And um, so uh, these cells grew a billion fold in volume. Uh, uh, these are called eukaryotic cells that are cells with a nucleus. And they can be a billion fold, billion, uh, uh, let's see. I think so, yeah, a billion fold larger than, than a bacterium. And uh, so they diversify, you know, they made all of these different efficient uh, intracellular organelles and became very efficient. And we retain these. I mean, our cell physiology, cell structure is based on what was evolved uh, by these eukaryotic cells between 2 billion and a half a billion years ago. So in that sense, we are 2 billion year old bacteria. We are you know, somewhat newer uh, eukaryotic cells. And then what, what happened with the eukaryotic cell, cells? Well, they're still too small to get very far swimming in water. If, if on the size scale, water is very viscous. And so for a eukaryotic cell, for example, a paramecium, a, you know, a, a single cell um, a protozoan, swimming with all its cilia uh, is like us swimming through molasses. It's a very laborious energy producing slow, uh, not very effective process. So what happened? Well, um, the, the answer to that was for protozoa and some eukaryotic cells to begin to stick together to make a multicellular organism. And, uh, and then they could drift on the ocean current or make progress by, by various swimming mechanisms like uh, jellyfish do. It's a, you know, it's a slow business, but they, they, they do get long distances. And, um, and so that generated a whole you know, period of, of evolution of multicellular organisms. And it wasn't, so the, the thing is, you start out, it takes two, two billion years to get bacteria really in good shape, then another half a billion to get eukaryotic cells. But then once you get multicellular animals, it, things proceeded rather quickly. And by a half a billion years ago, we had these worms, these marine worms uh, that were bilateral and, um, and had a brain. And so once you had that, 
the, they produced uh, the arthropods, the insects, uh, crustaceans, they produced vertebrates. And once, you, and once you had vertebrates, we went through from fish to amphibians to reptiles to mammals rather quickly. And so uh, the first worm was 600 million years ago, uh, maybe 500. And, uh, the first mammal was only 200 million years. So from 200 million years ago to, uh, to primates, was uh, primates are you know maybe uh, I don't know a hundred million years it was very short and then from primates to uh, to uh, Homo sapiens and or the ancestors that we share say with with uh, chimpanzees was only twenty million years ago so and then humans the human species is only uh, about two hundred thousand years old so it became a very rapid thing because we had all the parts and we just reassembled them in, in different ways. So, so that, those are the major, ep oh yeah, I forgot one epic. Yeah, so we went three, three epics, uh, my, um, bacteria, protozo protozoans, sorry, um, uh, prokaryotes, eukaryotes, multicellular animals. And then once we got um, to uh, reptiles, there was another important step to, to, uh, to humans, which was ma to, to mammals. And the thing about mammals is that they are animals that have, uh, they raise their temperature. They can, they can maintain a temperature that's quite a bit above the environmental temperature. And, and the reason that's important is because chemical reactions proceed, uh, very, are very sensitive to temperature. So um, there's a, uh, what's called a Q10. For every 10 degrees centigrade uh, a temperature rises, the reaction rates double or, th or triple. And so these new organisms, once they could raise their temperature uh, that much and hold it there, they could, um, they could see faster, their brains work faster, they could think faster, and they could move faster. And so, and they, they sort of developed as some brand, off branch of a reptile. And uh, so once they could raise their temperature, maintain it this way, uh, they were eating the reptiles and, and uh, outcompeting them. So there's one other part to this is that if, you, if you're born as a, as a tiny mammal and you have to maintain your body temperature, it requires tremendous amount of fuel and, the, and the, the most convenient way to supply that fuel was to have the mother uh, uh, give the, uh, in, the uh, in, infant mammal uh, milk. And so lactation became an adaptation that really went very closely hand in glove with, with uh, what's called endothermy, maintaining your temperature. And to give an idea of how costly that is, uh, a female mouse, when she has, you know, six little um, mouselets, uh, baby mice, uh, is feeding them. Her her metabolism uh, has to be uh, as high as that of a uh, of, of somebody who's competing in the Tour de France. They just they eat as much as they can to convert as much as they can to energy, and so it's a very uh, demanding metabolic state. But that. That was, I think, the fourth ep epoch is the conversion to mammals with 
with high temperature and lactation. Mm -hmm. So there's another idea that you talk about in the book related to design that is optimality. And I guess yes. that many biologists out there will not be fond of it, but could you explain it? Sure. Um, the idea, if you, there are many biologists who, if you say this is optimal or that's optimal, this was perfected, uh, they laugh at you and, uh, and they call you, uh, I've been called this many, accused of this many times as being Panglossian. Pangloss was a character in, in, in Voltaire's Candide, who was a, he was a doctor and he, whatever happened, whatever bad things happened to Candide or his girlfriend, um, Pangloss said, well, it's the best of all possible worlds. God created the world, so it's, it must be the best of all possible worlds. Everything will be fine. So, uh, so I'm, in, I, I'm often have been accused of being a Panglossian, but um, the the point the point is, and I'm not alone in this, uh, uh, that there are many aspects of biology that, if you study them closely, you can see that they are as good as the physics and chemistry will allow. And they, they can't get any better because, uh, I mean, a, a protozoan can swim as fast as is allowed by the, the viscosity of the medium, okay? So uh, it, 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 rowing, whatever it can be for that size, it can't, it can't get any better. And so, for example, um, the, um, the, uh, an, an enzyme, which is a protein, enzymes are proteins that facilitate chemical reactions. And the faster they can work, the faster the chemical reaction, the more product can be produced. But the many enzymes, not all, will reach a limit called the diffusion limit. And, and that is that they, they react as fast as the two reactions, reactants, chemical reactions can diffuse into the catalytic center of this enzyme have the reaction and then diffuse away and then a new set of reactants diffuse in, that's set by the physics of aqueous diffusion. And there are certain enzymes that actually reach that level. And so they're not, they cannot be, they are optimal for speed and they can't, um, they can't uh, be improved. You could make them worse by tinkering them with them, but you can't make them better because they're diffusion limited. Not all enzymes uh, uh, reach that level for, for other reasons, because speed isn't the only thing uh, that you want. You may, depending if, if you have a, uh, a high concentration of reaction, you, you might want to re uh, reduce the affinity of the, of the enzyme. So there are many uh, in optimizing, some things are purely optimal, others are optimized by making compromises between one demand and another. You can't, you can't, some speed and, and uh, isn't always the only, only matters. So, um, uh, so as I mentioned, ATP synthase, which is at the core of our metabolism, reaches an efficiency of 90%. That's about, you know, that's essentially uh, optimal and you couldn't, you can't improve it. And uh, human design power plants don't get anywhere near that. So, um, so 
in, in both of my books, one with Simon and, and my other, there are many more examples of this issue. And uh, you know, it's, uh, other people have written books. Uh, McNeil Alexander has written a book called uh, uh, Animal Optima, and he's got case after case of this. So. Mm -hmm. So before we move on to issues regarding medicine and modern medicine, uh, just one question that is a little bit different from the ones we've been exploring until now. How can we explain from an evolutionary standpoint things like music, art, play, comedy, and so on in humans? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I want to add one more thing to my previous point. One, one reason that I uh, emphasize the, the uh, prevalence of optimization and, and optimality in, in biological design, human design, is that uh, if we realize how finely things have been tuned over 4 billion years, we might think twice about uh, giving people all of these drugs to make them better because they're interfering basically with optimized mechanisms. And so you might make things better, but you could make them worse. And when you give people, uh, when you have a medicine that's built on four or five different kinds of drugs, you're really, uh, you're really uh, coming up against this 4 billion years of optimality. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how do we explain uh, music, art, pl play, comedy, uh, laughter, and, and, uh, and all of these other uh, behaviors that have to do with uh, emotion. Um, so I think it's a very important question because our brain uh, invests huge resources in, in all of these activities. Um, and yet these activities really belong to so-called leisure time, quote unquote leisure time. And they don't, they yield no calories at all. I mean, uh, unless you're a highly paid you know, artist or something like that. But for, for most people, these activities are not about finding food and cook, making food. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a cost. And so here's, here's, my, here's my take on this, my answer. Human intelligence um, is basically cooperative. And uh, the, the way human societies become so brilliant is that individual human beings with a brain that's only a liter and a half, once, once your brain is grown, it's inside your skull, it can't get any bigger and it can't, uh, it can't add more computation because there's, a, there's a, again, a physical limit. But what I think happened in human evolution is that by design, every brain is different. So when we have maybe 200 uh, cortical areas that are distinct, and, but they're not the same in you and me. Um, some, some people, uh, some very brilliant people are unable to recognize a face. And Oliver Sacks was, was a good example. He, he, was, he, uh, he wrote about people not being able to recognize faces. Uh, but he was, he, he had this himself, but he was extremely musical and he was extremely empathic and he had all kinds of other abilities, extremely uh, good writer. Um, and uh, uh, so, but probably 
the, the areas in his cortex that uh, are just are specialized for recognizing faces and remembering them, uh, either he didn't have them or they were diminished in size and so on. Uh, there are people who are born with musical talents. Uh, I wasn't one of them. And, uh, and so they pick up an instrument and start playing it really with very little instruction and, and, uh, and so on. My son is sort of like that. I mean, he's not, he wasn't Mozart, but, but definitely I noticed early that he, he had a talent that I, I just didn't have. Um, same for, for art. Um, the cave paintings that uh, decorate the cover of my book, What is Health, uh, are made. I mean, if you look at these cave paintings in Europe or in Indonesia, where they came 45,000 years ago, um, they're, not, they're not paintings by you know, your average amateur, you know, Cartoons show cavemen, you know, making these stick figures. These are these are artists, serious artists, and they must have been supported uh, to do that work by people in the community who fed them while they they did their art. They're, they're incredibly the fact that we still respond to them. Paintings that were made forty five thousand years ago uh, means that we, somehow we're the same people, but and we can we can get this this art. So. Um, so once you, once you, um, you give brains these different talents, innate talents, people practice them. You practice what you're good at because it's, that's rewarding and we can discuss why that is. But when you practice, what you practice, you become. And so, so we generate a community of uh, hunters, healers, navigators, artists, musicians, and so on. And, uh, and so, but what's, what's the you, what's the point? Why do, why do we do that? Why do, was the community support musicians and artists? Well, because um, we also, uh, by this specialization, became individually um, uh, sort of lo lonely in a way. Uh, I guess you would call it, we have built in existential uh, loneliness and sources of interpersonal conflict. And so, but if you're gonna cooperate in a community to share these, this communal intelligence and exploit it, you have to get along. And so I, I think that I uh, try to document in, in my book that the reason our brains invest so much as a community in art is that it relieves tensions. It, uh... sorry. <laughs> no problem. Uh, yeah, um, and um, it relieves tensions and it helps people uh, get along and, 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 and reap and calm down and, and reap the benefits of this communal, communal intelligence. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, so we will get now into modern medicine, uh, looking at the time perhaps we will explore one, two or three questions. And then if you would like, I would suggest for us to schedule a second interview to get into the rest of the topics more in depth, because there are still many questions I have here, but we don't have enough time today. But how do we distinguish between a disorder and merely expected variation? Mm -hmm. Well, um, 
Yeah, I, I, I put this a little differently. Um, I see that uh, all processes vary. And that's the point of allostasis. All, all processes need to vary according to the context. And every variation in our physiology uh, uh, has some cause. Modern medicine, conventional medicine, uh, often measures these variations. Uh, if I, before I see my doctor uh, in the US, I, I uh, get a series of blood tests and they look at the test, they see, well, this is, this is all in line, this is out of line, we have to fix this, you know, uh, and so on. And I, I, this is not entirely ridiculous. I don't, I don't want to scoff, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's the, the uh, intelligent, intelligent aspects of modern medicine, but um, it, it sees many variations as some, they, it calls them a disorder or a dysregulation. But often um, these variations uh, are not a disorder or a dysregulation. They are what you would predict if you understand the context of what the individual is, uh, uh, of the individual's existence. Uh, often there's nothing broken, but there is maybe something wrong. And so if you, ch if you take some variation in a human's uh, uh, functioning for a long time and you push it beyond where the design was ever intended for, uh, then things can go badly. And so let me uh, choose two examples. One, of course, is blood pressure. Um, uh, I point out that uh, in hunter-gatherer societies to this day, there's still some that exist. Um, I have visited uh, some of them myself uh, or horticultural societies. Um, people's blood pressure does not rise with age. Um, it's around 100, a little over 100, over you know 70 or something like that, and it's that uh, that way forever. And they uh, they 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 are basically lean. They have a lot of exercise, and um, they follow their own daily rhythms. But their blood pressure is low. In the U.S. in industrial countries, when children go to school their blood pressure at like age seven starts to rise. And it rises so that by uh, graduation, 18 or so, um, may, may, maybe a quarter of the population uh, already have pressures in the hypertensive range. Nothing's broken. It's just that the neural mechanisms that respond to various sorts of challenge um, uh, are turned on a lot. And so the blood pressure goes up, but instead of coming down later, it, it doesn't. And so when you, when you have chronic uh, elevation of temperature, the cardiovascular system adapts. What happens? Uh, your, your, cur your arteries uh, thicken. It's like, uh, it's like your, your biceps, when you're lifting weights, gradually adapt by thickening because they predict, oh yes, we're gonna have higher demand. We will make more muscle. So that's what happens in the smooth muscles of arteries. They, they expand, sometimes even beginning to uh, occlude the lumen of the vessel. And so it takes more pressure to drive the blood just through normally. And that's a sort of addiction where, you, where what you started seems reasonable, but now you, you re rely on it. So, so uh, and eventually if you have uh, hypertension, 
It causes inflammation. It causes all kinds of other problems that, uh, that lead eventually to stroke, uh, heart attack, um, kidney, uh, kidney uh, problems, and so on. And so um, it's, it, even though it's, it's not, um, it doesn't start out as a disorder, it can eventually lead to, to, uh, to death and, and, and disability in, in a lot of ways. And it's a major cause of, of death and disability. But medicine, uh, in medical schools, uh, if they call this essential hypertension. And the word essential, essential in medicine means we don't know why it is. But I think I know why it is. I think it's pretty clear. It's because we live uh, pretty much as a, as a society at, at, a, at a high level of social tension, really. And uh, an example of this is in the US, the, the communities with the greatest level of hypertension, the greatest level of, of uh, the problems from hypertension uh, are, are the, is the black community, the African-American community. And in the US, the reason is, is that in the US, black lives still, still don't matter. And, um, and so that they, they are under constant pressure and threat, for example, of police as we've seen over the last few years. Um, and so uh, they, they have the worst, worst hypertension. And uh, in medical schools, they tend to blame it on uh, genetics, which doesn't turn out to be true uh, because their genes are the same as the genes for West Africans and who emigrated were brought here as slaves and as Caribbean uh, blacks. But those people with the West African Caribbean blacks have a much lower levels of hypertension than the US. So that's, that's one example. Another. Are you with me? Are we doing all right? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, another example, which is highly relevant, um, is uh, type 2 diabetes. It's, it's a major contributor to cardiovascular disease. It also is a contributor to high blood pressure. And um, it's all kinds of other uh, problems. And uh, modern medicine calls this a, again, a regulatory disorder, a dysregulation of, of carbohydrate metabolism. But, uh, and it's very complicated, but the short answer is, if you eat high levels of carbohydrates, sweets and sugar all the time, uh, every time you, your blood pressure, your blood sugar goes up, um, it evokes insulin to be secreted to reduce it, to regulate it. But what happens when you have high insulin, called insulinemia, high insulin blood levels of insulin, is that uh, the cells that have insulin receptors that are protein molecules that bind the insulin and then respond to it, um, they reduce their sensitivity. And this is the same thing is true for all, all biochemistry. If you have receptors, and, you, and you, uh, you challenge them with high levels of the, of the, uh, the chemical, they reduce their sensitivity. And um, so uh, actually the number of receptors on a cell, insulin receptors is reduced. The cell uh, gobbles them up and, and reduces the number. So modern medicine calls this insulin resistance as though somehow, um, yeah, the cells were, un Un, incomprehensibly resisting the chemical that they need. 
but but it, it, it's it's a misnomer. I mean, it's a confusing term because it, it conceals the fact that this is just normal adaptation, and it's a complex adaptation. Uh, there are people who are studying this you know, all over. Very complex adaptation, but nevertheless, insulin resistance is a response is a predictable response to chronically high levels of glucose. And you can show it in a fruit fly. If you, if you feed a fruit fly on a high car carb carbohydrate, purely on a high carbohydrate, it will develop uh, essentially type two diabetes. You know? So, so um, yeah, so, and, and of course, then we, we, then we get to mental disorders and, and whether those are actually disorders or just normal variation that uh, becomes a little more extreme in, in some people. The, the circuits that we need for normal functioning, if you get out on the tail, maybe are a little more sensitive in, in some people to stress and abuse and so on. And, you know, people can go, can go mad, but it's sort of, uh, it's not... Uh, I think an intrinsic disease, or we, we don't know of any circuits that are broken, really. So anyway, that's, I'll stop with that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, do you think that the fact that modern medicine is based on the principle that the body is self-regulating, I mean, on the principle of homeostasis, that that's a problem? Yeah, I think it's a problem because um, because it teaches physicians from day one that they should examine the body and all its processes independently of of the brain and the mind and emotions. And so, uh, and and it, it, it's uh, it's it's incorrect. It's it's a very distorted view of the body, and that's really my objection to the idea of homeostasis and because it, it just cuts off the brain as a constant regulator for reasons of efficiency and uh, and people you know uh, people give drugs to change your chemistry I can change your chemistry by shaking your hand or smiling at you or you know putting you give, patting you on the shoulder you know uh, so so the idea of of coining allostasis was that uh, if you want to little get past homeostasis, you need another word to refer to it. And uh, so I've been, I've been selling this word for 35 years, um, or almost 35 years. And uh, last week, I noticed there, there's going to be a meeting uh, sponsored by the Federation of American Societies for Biology, FASEB, um, next summer in New Orleans. Uh, and it's co-sponsored by the uh, Endocrine, uh, Endocrinological Society. It's on allostasis. Uh, and so I'm, I'm delighted. I think it, it's a term that's, uh, it's not on everybody's lips, but it's, it's, uh, it's gaining a little bit of respectability. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Sterling, uh, I think this would be a good point to finish our first talk because then we will have to get into other issues surrounding human evolution and human health in modern industrialized societies. And so lots sure. of issues to explore next time if you agree to uh, schedule a second talk. 
Uh, and just to tell again that the book is What is Alphalostasis and the Evolution of Human Design? Would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find your work? Um, sure. Um, I do Twitter, actually. And, um, and uh, my Twitter name is whatishealth21. At, no, at whatishealth21. You can find me there. So thank you. Uh, I enjoyed this, uh, Ricardo, and uh, I'll be ready when next when you are. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. I will leave links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Glinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Lenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreff, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Dugny, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenk, Wal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roff, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafini, Akion Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardes France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Ruggieschi, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.